Thanks for joining us here on LJN Radio. I'm Tim Muma, and you're listening to You Do What? Now, this is a podcast that takes a look into unique positions that are out there. Well, how about a presidential speechwriter? We have one with us today. His name is John Pollock, and he was a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, so he's going to fill us in on what that was like. John is also the author of Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovation, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. And as I'm pretty sure, he did use plenty of analogies in those speeches as well. John, thanks for coming back on the show. Sure, I'm happy to be here. Well, we're talking about uh, your former career as it be that presidential speechwriter. Obviously, very interesting, fascinating to hear about that. I guess the first question simply would be, what really drove you or inspired you to actually want to be in that position and become a presidential speechwriter? It wasn't something that I had thought of for a long time. Mm -hmm. I had worked as a, after graduating from college, I had I'd worked on political campaigns in various capacities. I had worked as a journalist. I was looking to make a change, and I decided to move to Washington. And a friend asked me, are you looking for contacts? And I said, absolutely. I, I don't have a job. <laughs> I, I just figure there's opportunity in Washington for somebody with my skills. I'm packing up my car and I'm driving. Hmm. And this was somebody who was a generation older than I was. She said, oh, well, my, my best friend and college roommate is Hillary's speechwriter. Oh. Would you be interested in talking with her? And I said, sure. <laughs> At that moment, this light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, oh, I want to be a presidential speechwriter. <laughs> and I don't know where I got that idea, except that I remember as a child being impressed with, I think it was Ted Sorensen, uh, who was JFK's chief speechwriter. And something had stuck in my mind about, about that being a noble calling and an exciting way to contribute to the public debate. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I drove to Washington and met uh, with this speechwriter and started networking from there. And looking for a job is, as you know, all about networking. And Washington is the the city of networks and, and personal networking. So I started pitching myself as a speechwriter and asking who I should speak with. This led to interviews around town in various agencies and on the Hill. And people would ask, well, where else are you interviewing? And because I had had that informational interview at the White House, I said, well, I've, I've been at the White House and I've been on the Hill. Of course, people's ears perk up and suddenly you're more desirable. Right. And of course, people said, well, you say you're a speechwriter, you haven't written any speeches. <laughs> and I would say, listen, I've been a journalist, I've worked on campaigns. This is the essence of speechwriting. It's how, how do you communicate ideas and, and give me a speech and I'll show you, I can write one for you. And that's what I did. And they would give me a topic and, and some information and I'd have to prove that I could write speeches. And eventually I got a job on the Hill for a congressman from Michigan uh, named David Bonnier. So then take us to the process that got you to, you know, the position of being the actual presidential speechwriter. I mean, was it just continued networking? Was there an actual formal process with interviews and, I don't know, an assessment of what you did? I mean, how exactly does that all work? Because obviously it's not your typical position. Right. Well, there's six speechwriters for the president. Obviously, somebody in, in a position like that speaks all the time. Right. And so it takes time and research and focus to prepare a good speech. And so a leader with that much responsibility, if all they did was write their speeches, they'd do nothing else. And of course, they need to run the country. So there are a number of those positions, a small number, 
they're not advertised. They're not posted. There's no Craigslist. Oh, president's looking for a speechwriter. So it is about networking and it is about what I had to, first of all, I had to get some experience. Right. And I did that on the Hill for, for three and a half years. And there I was my boss's only speechwriter. And so I worked like a dog <laughs> and I wrote all kinds of speeches, short speeches, long speeches, campaign speeches, policy speeches, and it was great training. So that's number one, I was building up skills and experience. And the second piece uh, was the first interview I had at the White House. I had been greeted and shown around by somebody who was a speechwriter there for the First Lady, who then went on to become a, a speechwriter for the President. And she kept me apprised of we had struck up a relationship and she kept me apprised when openings would come up. Mm -hmm. And over the years I would apply for, there was a spot in the vice president's office or there was a spot on the national security council speech writing team. And so I would apply for those and I had speeches to show now and a stronger resume. And that was one piece of it. Knowing when these opportunities were coming up. Sure. Now I didn't get, I didn't get those opportunities, but in each time, I, I tried and, and I would get closer. And what I learned was how to pursue these jobs and what I needed and what these jobs required. And there are many jobs of a different nature that require the same sort of networking is, is you need advocates on the inside that are, are pushing for you that say, hey, yeah, this is, a, this is a really smart, talented, committed person who shares our values and has the determination to do a great job. Right. You should choose him over the other guy or, or the, the other woman. And, and, and so you, you, I needed to build up allies and a network of people. And some of that had to do with getting to know people. Some of that had to do with people that I knew on the Hill themselves getting new jobs at the White House. And then I'd have an advocate on the inside that might say, hey, you need to address issue X and, and be sure to emphasize that you understand this particular challenge or that issue. And, and that, that helped. And Eventually, a position came open, and I got it. Now, with a position like that, obviously, you did gain that experience. But when you're talking about writing a speech for a president, in this case, President Clinton, how does that come about as far as the content and essentially your ability to sound like him so that it doesn't come across as being artificial in some way? How does that all work? How are you able to really, in particular, mimic how he sounds or how he speaks or what words he uses, what phrases he likes. Can you give us a little insight into that? Every speaker has their own style. And if you listen to them enough, you can hear the patterns that they use and, and you understand their general approach to speaking. You know, if you're a religious person and you go to your house of worship every week, you get used to the way the sermon sounds and the patterns of that particular speaker. Sure. The same is true in politics. And I've written for a lot of different leaders from all different walks of life, and they all have their own style. But, but what they do have in common is a desire to connect with people and to get their point across clearly and in a compelling way. So I would say that as a speechwriter, the success is not so much in learning to mimic a particular speaker, but it's to become very empathetic with the audience. And it's really about listening to and understanding who you're going to be speaking to and what their predilections and interests are, and then seeing where that overlaps 
with the speaker that you're writing for. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of a Venn diagram of those two uh, elements. Of course, somebody like President Clinton, we, we all are very familiar with the cadences and rhythms mm-hmm. of his speaking, just as people are familiar with the way President Obama speaks today, or prior to that, the way that George W. Bush spoke. And they all have their unique styles. But again, it's more about focusing on the audience than it is on the principal, because, of course, they can always edit and generally do what you write and make some changes. Is there a particular speech that you especially enjoyed or took pride in, one you just really felt to yourself like I nailed it or it was just a big part of what President Clinton was doing? I mean, can you give us something that might be a little, uh, you know, inside your own mind and heart that something that stood out? Well, I'll tell you a story about a part of a speech that I really liked, because in any given speech, there are raisins and there is bran. (laughs) And raisin bran can't be all raisins, and if it's all bran, you're in trouble, too. Let me talk to you about one particular raisin in a a speech. This was uh, the last speech that President Clinton would give in the East Room of the White House, and it was a speech about protecting some unique landscapes in the country as national monument, mm-hmm. protecting them for posterity. And one of them was the Upper Missouri River breaks in, in Montana, uh, where Lewis and Clark had passed uh, when they were exploring the Louisiana Purchase on their way to the Pacific. As part of this dedication, the president was going to recognize posthumously York, who was the slave of Clark. And it was a thorny issue because Clark had promised York his freedom if he went on this expedition. Mm -hmm. And he went on the expedition and he performed with determination and valor and returned and and Clark reneged on the deal and and didn't set him free. The question became, how do we talk about the fact that there was a slave on this trip, this historic and important trip that, that opened up America and do it in a way that acknowledges, hey, that's not who we are today. And I was in a meeting with, with the communications director and, and a lot of pe- people who were involved in this speech. And, I, and they were concerned about this. And I said, well, it's, it's easy. We just, just as that trip opened up America geographically, we've grown in our understanding of democracy since then, too. And today we honor him for his service to the country. I said this and the whole room burst into applause. And it was fun because they're your peers and, right. and, and they recognize that that was a way that you could talk about it in a purposeful and substantive way while acknowledging that, hey, listen, we've all made missteps individually and as a country and we keep moving forward in, in, a, in a positive direction. And then I said, and because I, in a previous job, I had worked at the Henry Ford Museum outside of Detroit. And I said, because of this museum background, I said, well, let's call up the Smithsonian and see what we've got from Lewis and Clark and have them bring over some stuff for the speech. And people said, well, we can do that. I said, sure. I'm sure that they've got in their collection some Lewis and Clark right. material. And lo and behold, they had the compass that guided them. Oh, wow. And so then I worked that into the speech and, and it's on a table there in the East Room where Jefferson and Lewis rolled out, first rolled out the maps and said, okay, you're going to head west. Here's the trip. And you're going to explore. And so there was this great historic resonance to bring the compass back into the East Room where they had first rolled out the map hundreds of years, uh, you know, almost 200 years earlier. And it was really turned out to be a great speech 
uh, and those that moment in it was perhaps not as noted by everyone listening to the speech because right. it just made sense hearing it. But if you had to come up with it and frame it, that that's what makes the work interesting as a speechwriter. We're getting close to the time here. I wanted to ask you, though, because you kind of started off with talking about Kennedy speechwriter and how you just saw that as being a, a cool way to sort of contribute to the country. What does it feel like when you would see President Clinton up there speaking those words that you wrote, that you worked hard on? What sort of emotion did that elicit for you when you would see that? I remember the first time it happened, a colleague of mine, I, I wasn't at, actually at the speech because he was traveling. Sometimes you travel with the president, sometimes you don't. Sure. He you know, said, here, come watch it on my TV. And I went into his office and, and it was it was very odd to know what was coming next <laughs> out of the mouth of the president. Right. And of course, sometimes the president ad-libs uh, as well. And as he he should and needs to sometimes, but it was really satisfying, but surreal to know what the president was going to say because I'd written the speech. That is pretty funny. Just the the leader of the free world, you knew exactly what he was going to say. Did he ever say something when he kind of improvised a bit that you're like, oh, that didn't really fit, or uh, I wish you hadn't gone there? Did that ever uh, uncomfortable feeling ever come across? Not so much with President Clinton, because he's such a gifted speaker that he might go off on a tangent, but he'll bring it back and make a smooth transition back into the text. Sure. Sometimes uh, with less uh, able or experienced speakers, somebody will go off on the tangent and then they'll kind of get lost in the weeds and then have to kind of find their way back. And and it, it can be an awkward transition, because especially if you're if you're the president of the United States, people are going to wait to hear what you have to say. And right. if your speech runs long, it might delay the, the motorcade, but the motorcade's going to wait. If you're not as uh, prominent a speaker, you might be on really limited time slot. And these speeches are timed and they're designed to get applause at certain lines. They are designed to finish on time. Mm-hmm. and not, And so these are all considerations that can be thrown off when somebody decides to ad lib. Sometimes those ad libs are really great and inspired and sometimes not. But as Mark Twain once said, it takes three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. (laughs) Well, I think that's a good place for us to leave off. Uh, Who knows? Maybe you've inspired some people out there through your work writing for President Clinton, as well as giving us some details today. John, thanks for coming on, sharing your personal insights on this type of position. We do appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. And that will do it for us here on this edition of You Do What? Once again, we are speaking with John Pollock. He was the presidential speechwriter for Bill Clinton, and he's also the author of the book Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovation, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. And as I mentioned before, no doubt he used plenty of those in those speeches for President Clinton. If you'd like to get in touch with us about this show or any others on LJN Radio, you can email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the LJN, and go ahead and look up the rest of our podcast on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and search LJN Radio. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.